Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Good afternoon and welcome to today's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. My name is Ian Fisher. I'm the host for today uh, and very excited about the show that we have lined up for you. We're going to talk a little bit about tax breaks in our last segment of the show. Of course, it's tax season, and I know everybody's really excited about that. So if you have a student who's in college, we'll talk about some of the ways that you can save through your taxes this year. We'll also be talking about spring break, another exciting topic. It goes very perfectly with taxes, I think, and what you can do for spring break to help accelerate your college search. But before we do that, uh, we have uh, a segment here where we are talking about NACAC's State of College Admissions Report. Now, for those of you who don't know, NACAC is the National Association of College Admissions Counselors. It is the governing body or the body, professional body for college admissions officers nationwide and also includes high school counselors. And every year they come out with a report to talk about different trends that they observe in college admission nationwide. Of course, there's a lot of complexity involved in this report. There are data, statistics, Uh, Lots of information to be shared. And when we have to unpack things with a great deal of complexity, uh, there's no other person that we want to turn to than Elise Krantz, who is our in-house research maven. Uh, Elise, welcome to the show. Hi, Ian. So it's great to have you here. Uh, We love that you are so excited to sink your teeth into these things every year because it really helps us to get a better sense of how the entire landscape of college admission is shaping up. Uh, Why are you so interested in these kinds of trends? What is it that gets you so excited about looking at these data and and seeing how colleges are moving, uh, you know, over the course of, with their policies over the course of various years? I find it fascinating to see the trends move because it's it's very easy anecdotally when we're talking with families or students are talking with their friends at school to hear that something is big this year, that something is important to some schools and not to others. But the survey, which gets sent to thousands of colleges nationwide, um, is really a great chance for people to understand what's actually happening across the board, across the country, at hundreds of colleges, um, to understand everything from how wait lists are changing from year to year to how early decision is being perceived from year to year. And it just it helps us understand and make the most sense of, of the process as, as it changes. Now, it... I, I think that's fantastic. And I'm wondering, is this something that comes directly to your inbox because you have a special interest in this? Or can families go out and find this report on their own and, and follow along? Absolutely. Everyone can find this survey. I, I think I happen to get an email about it because I am on <laughs> the NACAC listserv. Uh, but sure. if families are interested in finding this survey, it is available online for free. If you do a search for NACAC, which is N-A-C-A-C, 2019 State of College Admission Report, it will bring you to the NACAC website and you'll find the executive summary as well as the entire report that has um, a breakdown of a wide range of topics related to admissions and a little bit of finance as well. Perfect. Now, if you're listening on your Thursday evening commute coming back from work or you save us for Friday morning to listen to us on a podcast, you might not be able to follow along with that report right in front of you because you got to keep your eyes on the road. But Elise is going to help us to unpack some of the significant findings that we see here or the things that she found to be the most interesting. And those are likely to be the things that are the most interesting. So Elise, Let's start with early decision. You sort of led with that as a concept. What is a change that we're observing in trends with early decision this year? Sure. So we hear uh, just anecdotally on on the ground that early decision is popular and it's big. And 
when we start to look at the results of the survey, we get a sense for actually how big it is. Now, I do want to put a little caveat in here. The results from this NACAC survey do not represent every college across the country. It is about 35% of schools respond to the survey that receive it, um, which still covers a wide swath of colleges. It includes private colleges as well as public schools that are a range of selectivity, a range of sizes, and it gives us enough of a sample size to still get a sense for what's happening. So with early decision, um, they've been tracking these numbers for years now, and from the past few years, you can see how the numbers of colleges that offer early decision keep going up. It used to be uh, popular with, let's say, about 20% of colleges offering early decision, 25, excuse me, 20% of schools that respond to the survey, I should just clarify. And then the following year, it, it moved up a little bit, and in the most recent survey, 25% of respondents um, now are offering early decision. So it, it, keeps, it keeps increasing. It's definitely a popular option for colleges, and it's a popular option for students, too. Right. And so what what does that tell us? I mean, is it, does that change anything about how students ought to approach the option of early decision? Uh, is it just helpful for students to know that it's something that's becoming more common? Are there any sort of takeaways that families can take here in terms of how they might interact with the application itself? So knowing that more and more colleges are offering this as an option and knowing that more students are choosing to use early decision, for those who can embrace early decision as, you know, the pluses and the minuses that go along with it, I think it, it behooves students to take it seriously as an option because if more students are using it and are locking themselves into that first-year class, that ultimately creates fewer spaces in the regular decision pool for everybody else. So not everyone, unfortunately, can take advantage of early decision because it does bind you, it does lock you in um, theoretically, and you can't compare financial aid packages as easily, so it's not the most financially um, agreeable opportunity for a lot of families, but because so many schools are using it now to build their freshman classes, to make sure that they have enough students, that it, it is becoming more challenging for anyone who doesn't use it to get a spot at those more selective colleges. And you send us out, I think every year, different information about how the ED admit rates vary dramatically from the RD admit rates at various schools, which I think you know gives us a sense that it is more likely for a, a given student to get in early decision than it would be for that same student to get in regular decision. Uh, and so looking at those chances improving plus the greater availability of this option, I think points in that direction for Elise, as Elise is saying, really consider ED as a possibility. You know, that sort of is the front end of the process, Elise. I want to turn to the back end of the process and, and talk a little bit about wait lists. You know, if students don't get an ED, um, they might be deferred, they might apply regular decision, maybe they're put on a wait list. What are some trends that we're observing with the wait list? I think that's one of the areas of greatest uncertainty for families. And especially since we're talking right now here in February that, you know, students are going to be hearing back from a lot of colleges soon and, you're, and you may be finding yourself on a, a wait list or two. Um, yeah. So more and more colleges are using wait lists. So in this most recent admissions report, 43% of the colleges that responded said they use a wait list, and that's up from 40% last year. And the numbers of students that colleges are putting on the wait list, that's going up as well. And the, the downside is, is because colleges are putting so many students on their wait lists, it's getting that much harder to get off the wait list because colleges just have so many options from the students who agreed to stay on that wait list that the survey finds that it's 20% of students are ultimately getting accepted after being waitlisted, whereas last year the survey found that 25% were getting accepted. And those numbers drop even further when we're talking about more selective colleges. Um, so the survey found that for waitlisted students at highly selective schools, only 7% of those waitlisted students 
we're getting in. So the numbers, the numbers sound a little scary. <laughs> Maybe they are a little bit, um, but that's what the survey helps us understand. The report helps us see what's happening at the national level. I think it is important, though, to think a little bit about what the role of the waitlist is. You know, it's really a pool to help an enrollment manager to hit their targets. And if they don't need to go to that pool to admit students to hit a target, they're not going to use it. You know, students often look at it as, oh, I got waitlisted. That might mean that the college is is hoping to bring me into their class. Uh, really, they're using that a, as an opportunity to to make those targets if they need to. Uh, you know, between this waitlist news and and early decision being a uh, you know an option, I think that sometimes it's like wow, things are getting more and more competitive, which you know is is true in some ways at some schools. But what's the average national acceptance rate this past year? Did did NACAC identify any trends that show that? Maybe it's not all bad news for students out there. And this is the number that I love to to point to year and year again is to say that not all colleges are highly selective. So many times, and we, I think, are guilty, too, of it a little bit as well. You know, we focus yeah. on these colleges that have ridiculously small acceptance rates, and we get so excited by it and talking about the strategy behind it. But the reality is when you're looking at four-year colleges across the country, the average selectivity rate among those who responded to the SNACAC survey, it's 66.7%. So two-thirds of students are getting in, generally speaking, across the board. Um, And so it's such a small, small number of of schools that have those ultra-low acceptance rates. And and it used to be the case a few years ago that we talked about how that national acceptance rate was actually smaller. It has grown in recent years. Um, a few years ago, it was closer to 65%. So the fact that it's that it, it uh, rounds up to 67% for this most recent cycle that's that's a that's a very generous acceptance rate. Yeah, and it's all about sort of where you're looking, right? So if you're going to focus on a very small sliver of 15 colleges and their acceptance rates, I think that you're going to see a lot of bad news or or some distressing information around those average acceptance rates. But if you expand your lens a little bit and look at a broader number of colleges, all of which have really nice options for students, you see this 66% acceptance rate as being something that's, that's, that's much more common. So I, I love reinforcing that. I think it's a really key idea. uh, And I hope families will sort of take that to heart. Uh, Another sort of positive piece of news that came out of this report, you know, it's not just about statistics and admission. It's also about what admissions offices are considering when they're looking at an application. Do you want to share the factors that um, are the most important factors that admissions offices are considering for students this year? Absolutely. Um, So the survey always asks colleges to rank and weight certain factors in admission. Uh, For example, the grades that a student earns. How important is that? Or how important uh, is test scores? Or where the student went to high school? And for the past several years, these numbers have been really static. Um, So it's generally been the case that a student's grades have always been the most important, followed by the strength of their curriculum, along with their test scores. A little further down, you'll you'll find essays and letters of recommendations. Um, but recently, it wasn't included. You won't see this in the actual NACAC report. There was a separate report that was just issued by NACAC that ties into this data, however, where they included a new factor for colleges to weigh in on to say how important is this particular factor as you make admissions decisions. And this factor was called positive character attributes. So in addition to things like a student's class rank, a student's extracurricular activities or their interview, how, how important would you rank their character as, you, as it's revealed in different portions of the application? And so this is brand new data, and the colleges that respond to the survey, and I love this, it's great, they found that character is just, it falls just after all of the academic 
factors. So after uh, curriculum and, and grades and test scores, character was the next most important factor. And that actually was above letters of recommendation and above essays. So this is, I think, great news for all of those students out there and, and parents who think, my kid is a great kid and they, they belong at a good school. Um, and colleges do care about that. It is important to them that they're building a class of, of good characters, of good students. Right. And, and good character is something that I think emerges from other aspects of the application. I mean, w- when we're using the essay as a factor, we're talking about sort of the writing quality, the execution, the way that they are successful in that particular project. But an essay can also convey really good character. A letter of recommendation can convey good character, right? So those things are really important. I, I loved reading this this tidbit when you shared it with me, Elise, because I think it's really critical. Which colleges among those that responded to the survey are more likely to be interested in things like good character or, or other sort of holistic factors that describe the student's personality? It's interesting. And I, I guess once you sort of reveal the data, it says you might think to yourself, oh, yeah, that makes sense. But the schools that tend to focus more on character um, are those are schools like the, the private colleges and the smaller colleges. So those that can, that have the luxury of taking their time reading applications, that have the, the time to dig in to different aspects of the application can really suss that out. Um, whereas it's more common at private schools and at larger colleges, simply by virtue of their numbers, um, that they do tend to focus more heavily on things like test scores and GPA as opposed to essays or character. Um, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't still highlight your strong uh, personal attributes, even if you are applying to large state schools, that, that that is still an important factor for them, just not quite as important, not as readily picked up on as the smaller private colleges. Yeah, one of the things I like to tell students is that even those schools that are numeric in their review, they, they still want students that are positive character. They're just not using those necessarily as a driving force in their admission decision because they don't necessarily need to. Um, I, you know, I think that, that schools that are more selective, that have smaller communities, it becomes a much more important factor for them. But but I think it's going to be relevant, salient for, for all institutions. Um, <clears throat> all right, Elise. Are you ready to be quizzed? I've got a little quiz for you here. Uh, you're, you're not, this is for fun, so you're not going to be graded or penalized here, but I'm just curious. I want to ask you a few questions. Can, can we do that? I, we're going to do it whether I want to or not, Ian, but I say go <laughs> for it. Let's see what happens. <laughs> that's exactly right. So you shared that this year's survey showed a 7% growth in apps from international students, which is down yeah. from 8% last year and 13% the year before. What was the application growth among first-time freshmen? Did you say six? Six percent. Yep. That is that is is correct. Fantastic. All right. Question number two. Can you name the primary means by which colleges recruited first time freshmen for the fall twenty eighteen admission cycle? So the the primary means that they recruited first time freshmen, and I'll give you a hint, there are three of them. See, this is not something that I normally dig into because I'm not on that side of the desk anymore, but I'm pretty sure that email, uh, yes. campus visits, and yes. the school's websites are among the yes. most important ways of recruiting. Yeah. Three for three. All right, Elise, you can't, or you can't downplay your ability to acquire this knowledge. That's really excellent. Okay, let's talk about ED. We're going back to the beginning. Here's an easy one. Who's more likely to offer ED, a private or a public college? Private college. That's right. And how much more likely? Oh, oh, that's unfair. I don't know how much more unlikely or more likely. That's tough. Do you know? You must have the number, or else you wouldn't be asking it. Absolutely. Yeah. Looked in the back of the book. Thirty-seven um, percent of private colleges offer ED. Only five percent of public colleges offer ED. Um, now. Here's one for you. What percentage of selective colleges, so that's colleges that admit fewer than half their applicants, what percentage of selective colleges offer early decision? Oh, so you have the chart right in front of you. Mm, you'll have to help me out with this one, too. Take a guess. Let's, let's just take a guess. Do you think it's more or less than half of selective colleges? Of more selective colleges? I'm going to say, okay, let's say like 75%. It's a little bit lower than that. So it's selective. Any school that admits less than half, it's just over half, 56% of okay. selective colleges offer ED. 
um, which I was really struck by. That's a huge number relative to the. It is a big number. Although I just yeah. thought it was even bigger, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought you did a great job uh, with the quiz. Thanks for being a good sport there. Um, I can't believe you got the recruitment methods. That's really excellent. Um, Elise, I want to thank you so much for keeping us all informed on the state of college admissions, for coming on the radio show, and for taking the the quiz. This is the first for the, the College Coach Conversation. So thanks a lot for being here. It was a fun. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Ian. You got it, Elise. All right, folks, when we come back, we're going to be talking about ways that you can use spring break to plan your college visits. Don't go away. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Hey folks, welcome back to the show. What we're going to do next is... Um, we are going to swap spring break stories. I, I, no, we're not going to talk about that at all. We're going to talk about ways that you can use your spring break to have an effective experience visiting colleges. And joining me to do that is uh, from way down in the southeastern United States, which is the target, I think, for many spring break getaways for families, sure. uh, Tova Tolman. Hey, Tova, welcome to the show. Hi, Ian. Now, it's it, where you live in Georgia, is that a place where you see a, a huge influx of people during spring break? Do people come down there for vacation in March and April? Uh, not uh, college or prospective college goers. We see a huge influx of um, adult girl trips and bachelorette parties, but not, not your typical spring break uh, or, or college uh, tours. Right. And so when we're talking about spring break for this particular show, we're not talking about college spring break uh, that you would see happening in places like Cancun or Miami, but instead talking about ways that families can use spring break to get a little bit out of the college visit experience. Now, I want to start with pros and cons, Tova. Spring break seems like a great opportunity to go and see some colleges. Are there reasons that it might not be the best time to go and visit schools? Hmm. I'd say the cons, and then we can talk pros afterwards, but you know, let's always dig into the negatives and focus on those first. That sounds like more fun. Uh, cons might be you uh, have vacation, but so might all of the other students in your state. Maybe it's a coordinated spring break and you're checking out a school where there is a huge influx of other visitors. And sometimes that's great. Uh, but wait, we're focusing on the negatives. That can make it can make it very difficult to get on a tour. Maybe the tours are all full. Maybe their uh, special programming is all booked up, and it's really crowded, and it's it's hard to get a, a sense because it's overrun with high school students instead of the common college uh, experience or campus experience. I'd say another con might be that it's very possible your spring break overlaps with the college's spring break, which then 
makes it even harder to get a good sense of the school if the school is on vacation, there aren't students around or as many students around, and you're not really able to get that typical feel, the kind of problem that you might run into visiting schools over the summer. No, I th- yeah, I think that that's right on. That's that's one of the big ones is if you go when when school is relatively quiet, uh, it's not going to be a representative visit to campus. And so then your experience is entirely shaped by the other visitors who are there. And as you're pointing out, Tova, that's going to be a lot of other high school students, especially if your spring break is the same time as many other students. But, you know, let's say that it might be a good idea. What are some of the pros for going and visiting some colleges on a, a spring break trip? Sure. When we used to plan events for prospective students, honestly, we sometimes would look at the public school spring break schedule for big feeder states of ours. So if I was working at Fordham, for example, we definitely wanted to know when New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Massachusetts, when they had their big, massive spring breaks. When were the Boston schools on spring break? When were the Bergen County, New Jersey schools on spring break? And we would plan uh, prospective student events accordingly. And we'd roll out the red carpet, we'd have big open houses, we'd get together faculty and administrators and students all together to make it really easy for students to hear all about the school just in one day in a sort of concentrated fashion. And that can make it sometimes easier, maybe there are even more visit opportunities than a typical day that only has tours and information sessions. And that can be really nice. Also really nice to be able to actually have the time without worrying about getting back to school that afternoon or uh, being able to take a drive and, and take a few days to actually maybe drive a few bunch of hours away to an area that has a few schools and to be able to get in a few visits at a time. And I'd say that that can be a different kind of spring break trip, right, that we were really talking about is that road trip perhaps that uh, – you hear so much about the family getting in the car and going on a big college tour. A lot of that right. can sometimes be accomplished over spring break. Now, you're sort of describing a lot of students who are coming to Fordham who live in a local area. What do you think about the strategy of going to see schools that are nearby versus the strategy of using this as the opportunity to fly somewhere, um, to you know, take a student, go for a week, maybe fly from New York to Los Angeles or fly from Los Angeles to Chicago? Uh, how would you sort of weigh the different options between making it a big trip versus something where you're going and, and seeing some local schools in quick succession that you wouldn't get to see during the school year? Hmm. Does it have to be one or the other? Isn't time unlimited? Can't we do both? Uh, yeah, Because it's really important. It's really important to see some schools in your backyard. I think maybe I might approach this differently if I'm in 10th grade or in 11th grade. In 10th grade, you haven't even started checking out what's in your own backyard. It might be a good time to concentrate that. Uh, before you get on a plane, get a sense of what it is you like, what it is you don't like. Before you fly across the country or, or six states over or invest in the cost of that plane ticket, I want to have a good sense of what that school might be about and how does it align with what I might be looking for. Now, second half of junior year of high school, I might start to have a sense of my likes and my dislikes. First half of, of 10th grade, second half of 10th grade, I probably have no idea. I don't know what a big school is versus small school, well, flexible general education requirements versus a very strict core. So using local schools to sort of start that early research, maybe for 10th graders, might make good sense. And then you could really tailor and target that flight or that train ride or that long car ride uh, when you have a little bit of a better sense of what you're looking for. I love. I think that's a really great way to split it up. I, I don't see the benefit in spending a lot of money to travel far away for a ninth or a tenth grader to get a feel for schools. I think that that can wait until later. Uh, it is definitely a better yeah. idea to stay local if you can. Um, of course, families travel during spring break. Maybe you have a trip yeah. planned to Los Angeles anyway. Uh, how might you think about sort of rolling some college visits into a trip? You're the planner here. Um, I know that you're extremely organized, that you've got, uh, you know, typed out itineraries for everything that your family does <laughs> down to the minute. Whether this is true or not, I'm going to stick with this story. Um, how many, how many colleges intact. do you I think? I no longer feel safe. <laughs> <laughs> how many colleges do you think that you could comfortably visit in a day and, and what should families be thinking about in terms of the balance between making this a college trip and making it a family vacation? 
I love this question. I beg of you, please never, ever try and fit more than two schools in on one day. I don't care if they're right next to uh, each other or not. There's only so much you can retain before they all start to look the same and sound the same and feel the same. And you stop (laughs) having the ability to differentiate between these schools. And it needs to feel fun. It can't be exhausting. So, I mean, these are almost two different questions. One is, our family has a trip planned to L.A. anyway. We're going to be there for X event. Uh, Could we see one, maybe fewer uh, natural events or go to one less museum and see one more school? Yes, please. Wonderful idea. Uh, If this is just a college tour trip and we want to find a balance between things that are fun versus uh, college tours, well, I'd argue, how can you keep the college tours fun? So let's say, hypothetically, today I just visited University of Florida in Gainesville, Uh, Mm -hmm. you know, hypothetically. (laughs) I might have noticed a flyer for their Florida Museum of Natural History is having amazing pollinators exhibit for the next month. That could be such a fun, cool thing to do on the side, especially if you're traveling with siblings, looking for other activities, maybe on the campuses that might give you another sense of what's going on around the campus, around the town of the campus, or other auxiliary opportunities that have to do with the university life. Uh, Maybe your kid is a sports fan, mix in uh, going to a basketball game on campus. If it's spring, hey, maybe maybe late February, March Madness is getting pumped up and ready. Who's going to make the tournament? Let's see if we can catch a game while we're there. I think it's important to mix in the fun, but the fun can be the campus business too. If you are dreading these visits, your student is going to dread these visits. So no more than two a day ever and mix in a lot of fun, please. You just gave me sort of an idea for it might be fun to do a little bit of a family scavenger hunt at these different schools and the scavenger hunt in terms of things that tour guides say. Um, you know, sort of commonalities mm. that you're seeing between different schools. Beth Heaton mm-hmm. uh, is doing some college visits with her son, and uh, she's posting some pictures on Instagram. Uh, she's at Elizabeth underscore Heaton 92, for those of you who are big Instagram followers. I don't think she would mind if I gave a little plug there. Um, and she has two pictures so. of of college seals back to back. And she says that both schools said, don't step on the seal. So, you know, there's something about that tradition that feels very special at that school, but that actually is being repeated at other schools. And, you know, there's a question of, well, could you do a scavenger hunt around a silly tradition or seriousness around the college seal or something along those lines so that you can both recognize commonality between institutions, but you're also keeping your ear open for the things that are differentiators at each individual school. How how do students sort of think about the note-taking process? Is this just a matter of sort of showing up and visiting the schools or should they do something even during spring break to bring a record of their visit home with them? Pictures. Pictures, 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 pictures. Um, I, you know, even if it is at your Instagram stories and then you save them um, or you, whatever it is that you are, uh, <laughs> how you're taking notes, I, I beg of you. Because otherwise, when I said you're going to forget which was which and which was a school that had the, the French fry statue outside the science museum, you need pictures and caption them. And whether you're sending them to friends or just keeping them for yourself, it is important. And then afterwards, I, I know we've talked in the show about maybe building a spreadsheet, uh, having mm-hmm. some sort of organization to your research. But I think in the moment, you really don't want to sit there typing on your phone the whole time. It's kind of rude for the poor tour guide who is just going to assume you're sending text messages or who knows what else. But uh, do take pictures, jot down some notes. And then not when you get back home, but when you are done for the day, that same day, especially if you've gone to more than one school in the day, take a moment to jot a bit down more formally. Whether it's a fun fact that you remember, a silly tradition, uh, something about the seal. And if you do end up following Beth Eaton on Instagram, you might note a comment from me about how not all schools mind if you step on the seal, as I stood on the University (laughs) of Florida seal today. No one seemed to mind. (laughs) But I think pictures can be really helpful. Yeah. And, and, you know, that the note taking immediately afterward, I think is really important. That reminds me back of my interview days when I would interview eight students in a row. And I, I better take some mm-hmm. notes about each student at the end of that conversation, because by the end of that day, I was going to forget the first or second interview if I didn't take notes. Um, that never happened because I always took notes. I just got to go ahead and say that. Um, I also think that active <laughs> note taking while you are 
in the midst of a tour or a presentation is not a particularly good idea because you're going to miss the content. There's some element of just sort of being there and letting the experience be what it is uh, as opposed to actively taking notes. So I would put your phone away except when you need to take a a picture as Tova suggests and really focus on that tour guide. Um, I think it's also a good idea to register for official tours if you're going to be on the campus anyway. One of the things Elise didn't mention in the last segment because I didn't ask her about it, but demonstrated interest is still one of those factors that is relevant at a lot of schools and registering for those Mm -hmm. visits I think is really really important. Tova any final recommendations or thoughts for students as they're thinking about planning these spring break trips for college visits? Uh, You know I I don't want to underscore what you just said actually how many people think they visited a school because they drove through it or they you know parked and got out and walked around a little bit not only one will the school have no record of you having attended two you're not going to probably learn all that much about the school uh, other than what it looks like so do actually check in with the admission office even if it if you can't make their formal tour even if they don't have a formal tour go to the visitor center check in fill out whatever informational card that they have or uh, iPad uh, touchscreen that they have for you to fill out some information and make sure there's a, an official record of your visit, whether it's for your own information gathering or because they might be tracking your interest in the school. Great. Tova, I think this is really awesome. We sort of came into this with two words, spring break, and had to figure out how to unpack that. I think we did a pretty good job. Thanks a lot for taking the time so to too. share with us. Awesome. My pleasure, Ian. All right, great. So now this is a point in the show where I talk a little bit about my beauty routine. So when I wake up in the morning, you know, for me, it's just sort of throw a hat on, put on some sweats, march downstairs and get started for work. But as I've gotten older, I've started to notice that it's important to take better care of my skin. Now, when it comes to beauty products, there are so many choices uh, I hear. I don't really take advantage of them. Uh, But you should demand more from your favorite brands. And I think that, you know, what's important and we talk about a lot in our household is the importance of no animal testing around different brands that we use. And, you know, especially, you know, making sure that you have Uh, a company that you can believe in. And that's why we want to talk today about Thrive Cosmetics. And cosmetics is spelled C-A-U-S-E, medics, cause, uh, because their focus is on giving back and being 100% vegan and cruelty-free. I don't understand why you'd need to have animal products and things that you don't necessarily eat. And you don't have to be a full vegan to understand that having an essential cleanser that doesn't have animal products in it can still leave your skin feeling soft and glowing and, and in many ways give back to the environment. So, Thrive Cosmetics, that's again Thrive, C-A-U-S-E, Medics, gives back for every product purchase. They are helping women in need by donating funds or products. And we are happy to support them here on our show. So you can go to thrivecosmetics.com slash college coach and use the code college coach for 15% off your first purchase. That's thrive, C-A-U-S-E, medics.com slash college coach. The code is college coach for 15% off. Again, why should your beauty routine have uh, any animal products or animal testing you can give back to women in need thrivecosmetics.com slash college coach code college coach when we come back we're going to talk a little bit about tax breaks when it comes to paying for college so don't go away we're on alexa smart speakers and connected devices hey alexa play Being Here Podcasts on Apple Podcasts. Try it now. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. 
Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. All right, folks, welcome back to the show. And, you know, we're in tax season now. I don't know if anybody's told you. I think most people wait until... April to start thinking about tax season, but here at College Coach with our college finance experts, we never want to wait too long to consider all of the options ahead of us. And joining us today on the show is my colleague in college finance, Alex Bickford. Hey, Alex, welcome to the show. Hey, how you doing, Ian? I'm doing really well. Um, it, you know, I'm starting to look at my taxes now. I'm not paying for college. Uh, I'm paying for child care, aftercare. And so there are some tax uh, deductions and benefits that I get as a result of that. But let's talk a little bit about families that are paying for college this year or maybe coming up next year. Is paying for college something that's going to be tax deductible? Yes, yeah, so that's, a, that's a great question. And, and the answer is for some people, yes. And the tax benefits really can come at a couple of different points. So, Ian, you mentioned now you've got uh, child care costs and you might uh, have some benefits for that. So the first right. thing I want to remind folks is that even if you're not paying for college right now and you're just kind of looking uh, to pay for college in the future, that there are tax breaks you can take now for saving for college. There may be tax breaks available for paying for college while you're in it. Uh, and then there might be tax breaks available for after college uh, if you're repaying student loans. So the tax breaks don't necessarily all come at the time of college, but they could come before, during, or after college. Gotcha. And, you know, I've actually seen uh, some of those myself. We've got a 529 plan here in Oregon, and Oregon is one of the states that has historically given tax deductions for contributions to 529s. Coming up in the next year, they're going to do tax credits uh, for 529s, which is which is great news and a great incentive to save. What are some of the other plans that we might see on a federal level or within individual states that can help bring those tax savings? Yeah, so if you're looking at saving for college, it, uh, the 529 plan is the most prominent. The 529 plan offers federal tax benefits uh, on the growth of the plan, being able to have access to the growth uh, of that plan tax-free to use for college education and actually $10,000 a year uh, for K-12 uh, tuition expenses as well. Um, and then you have the individual state tax benefits that individual states may have as far as either tax credits or deductions, as you mentioned, that Oregon does. Many other states have that as well. And then the other plan as far as saving that really has tax benefits that's really geared towards education uh, would be the Coverdell ESA. There's no state tax benefit on that, but it has the same uh, tax-deferred growth and then tax-free use for education as well. Now, you know, I, I was in graduate school um, before I came to College Coach uh, now about seven or eight years ago, and I remember, uh, I think it was the American Opportunity Credit um, was something that I was able to claim on my taxes. I hope I was able to claim it. Um, is that something that might apply for certain families, uh, something that they could look into? Yeah. Yeah, so there's two, uh, for actually folks who are actually in college, there are two primary tax benefits uh, that they may qualify for. One is called the American Opportunity Tax Credit, and actually that one in, uh, uh, is primarily geared towards undergraduate students, um, and the parents of undergraduate students primarily. Uh, hmm. The lifetime learning credit is, might have been what you were getting. When you were in that might be school. right. That could be for un. Yeah, it could be for undergraduate uh, or graduate school as well as kind of um, non-traditional learners. Gotcha. Okay. And so are these just things that you look into and see whether they apply to your situation and then they, they show up on your taxes and you get a, a bigger refund? Yes, yeah, so that's a great question. So they're both credits. And so how 
the American Opportunity Tax Credit works if you qualify for an income restriction. So there are income restrictions on both of these. Uh, so there'll be phase-out ranges for depending on what your modified adjusted gross income is. If you qualify from an income standpoint, the American Opportunity Tax Credit allows you for the first $2,000 that you pay towards tuition uh, or uh, fees and books and supplies uh, out of your own pocket or actually even from a student loan will come back to you on a true credit back to you. That's like a dollar-for-dollar dollar exchange. That lowers your tax liability. And then the next $2,000 you spend, uh, 25% of that can come back to you in a true credit. So that's a $4,000 expenditure uh, for up to $2,500 back on your taxes. So that's a really, really good incentive if you qualify uh, for essentially the first $2,000 you pay being free. Now, that's a pretty significant uh, chunk of money. Now, you know, tax filing status, I think you can be um, married filing jointly. You can be married and filing separately. Um, how do different filing statuses affect the way that these different credits might obtain on your particular tax form? Sure, and that's something that's, that's really great, um, great thing to point out and great thing to look out for. So there are different income ranges. Uh, where your ability to claim these credits, whether it be the American Opportunity Tax Credit or the Lifetime Learning Credit, or even student loan interest deductions, uh, different income phases, uh, phase-out ranges for if you're filing singly or ahead of household, or if you're married filing jointly. One thing that's important to kind of remember is that in, in folks who are married uh, filing separately probably know this already, uh, but the government really discourages married people from filing separately, and they really reduce, cut back, or even in some cases eliminate uh, tax benefits, tax credits, or deductions uh, for folks who are married filing separately. Uh, hmm. And that's the same that, that can, same thing can be said for uh, the student loan interest deduction, American Opportunity Tax Credit, and Lifetime Learning Credit, is that while there are phase-out ranges for married filing jointly or, or single folks or household folks, uh, the, the benefits are essentially eliminated for those who are filing separately. You know, one of the other big advantages to filing jointly is that only one person has to do the taxes. Uh, and, and so I put in a yeah. little bit of a plug for that because it's it's nice to have only one return that you got to worry about. Uh, so, you know, thinking about some of these things, um, how do families start to prepare for the arrival of tax season? What are some things that they need to do to get started here? Yeah, so uh, like with any other, uh, whether you have W-2s coming into your household, or you have your mortgage interest deduction statements that come into your household, it's important to kind of keep an eye out of the mail that's coming to your household or the statements that are being sent to you electronically. Um, because whether it's saving for college and your 529 plan sending you documentation uh, for a state tax uh, deduction uh, or whether it's uh, you getting a 1098-T from the college itself to show for the expenses you paid that year, or getting a document for the student loan interest that you've paid to your student loan servicer, those are all important documents to, to gather, to collect, uh, and to set aside. Uh, I really encourage folks, I, I know for a lot of folks, when they get something from uh, maybe their student loan lender, they may put that in the shred pile because that's a statement and they're paying electronically and you know they're, they're not used to having to kind of review those documents. This time of year especially, and you should have received these documents already, but if you haven't, uh, it's important to kind of keep an eye out in the mail for these things. And if you don't have it as of yet, to log on uh, to your online account to try to find it. And if you don't have an online account or if the school doesn't post that stuff online, they give the school a call and let them know that you don't have your, your appropriate tax documents. You want to really have that in place uh, for when you either go to file your taxes with an accountant uh, or you use the you know tax software products that are out there. You know, one of the things that I find that I often do is I get a little bit ahead of myself. I love you know, sort of going through the tax software and figuring out what, what uh, refund I'm going to have or what I might owe in a given year and sometimes can jump the gun on getting some of those forms. And so I think it's a great idea to step back and think, okay, what are all of the forms that I'm going to get here? Think about all of your different accounts, especially as they pertain uh, to education in this case, um, and make sure that you're getting those forms before you actually 
go through the process of filing those taxes. Um, now, you just mentioned an accountant. Some of the stuff you're talking about here is a little bit complicated. Do you think that an accountant is necessary um, for catching some of these different deductions and credits associated with the cost of college? Sure. A good, qualified accountant certainly uh, will be somebody who will know to ask about these things and bring these, these things up. But the tax software products that folks typically use to do their own home taxes are, are really good at catching these, generally at catching these as well. I can't say for every single one of them out there, but I know the products that I use to do my taxes and that a colleague of mine uses a different product, uh, they definitely pop up. Uh, with, okay, did you pay student loan interest this year? Did you pay for college this year? Did you save for college this year? Those are questions that these products are designed to ask. Uh, so it's important when you kind of start your taxes to kind of think about what did I do differently this year than last year? Um, were there any major expenditures that I had in life that were different? And make sure when you're kind of going through those demographic questions that you're answering those questions uh, as of what has happened in the past year. Uh, things like, did you have a child go to college? Did you have a child born? Those are all the questions that they'll ask that will kind of stimulate to them to ask these questions later on. So not always yeah. necessary to have an accountant, but a good accountant certainly should know to ask these questions as well. Absolutely. And and you'll get asked these questions again and again by whatever software you use. I mean, that's something that pops up for me. And I find right now that I'm clicking no to a lot of those questions, but I know that one day I'm going to want to click yes and, and sort of see what what is behind those doors. Um, so, Alex, I really appreciate this. I think that you know, there are some opportunities that are going to be out there for families, but it's important to stay organized and make sure that you've got all the forms that you need before you file. Any parting uh, words of advice for families as they think about this uh, coming tax season? Yeah, so the one thing that I'll remind folks of, and I think we've talked about this on the podcast before, but the American Opportunity Tax Credit, the Lifetime Learning Credit, those two credits for while you're in college, it's important to remember that the savings that you've done that is tax incentivized, so either through the 529 plan uh, or the covered bill account, like I mentioned, or, or prepaid tuition plans as well, is that you cannot use those dollars to claim the American Opportunity Tax Credit or the Lifetime Learning Credit. That would be a process that's called double dipping. You're getting tax incentives on top of tax incentives. So what you need to do, you can still get use your 529 plan money tax-free and get the American Opportunity Tax Credit in the same year, you just need to pay uh, for the American Opportunity Tax Credit dollars with separate dollars than the 529 plan dollars. So it's important to kind of be strategic about your plan to pay for college and make sure that you have different dollars designated for different things. And maybe it's a great idea to go on back and listen to the archives of this podcast to get all of the different strategic advice that we've given over the years. And I'm sure we'll talk about it more in a coming show. Alex, thanks a lot for showing up today and, and helping talk us through these different tax options. Thanks, Ian. I appreciate you having me. You got it. All right, folks. Next week, Beth Heaton returns to the hosting chair with an all-new episode for our listeners. She'll be unpacking the difference between a BFA and a BA degree, and we'll add to our ongoing discussion about taking a gap year. In the College Finance Corner, we'll start to talk about cash flow and household budgeting and how you can reduce the out-of-pocket cost of college by taking stock of your existing expenses. Until then, remember that March comes a little later this year. Happy birthday to all of you February 29th babies. I hope you celebrate in style in 2020. Remember, it only comes once every four years. Have a great weekend, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.